Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Uh, we welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk tech, uh, the internet, sometimes space, uh, sometimes the law. Uh, it's all kinds of stuff. We don't like to be told what to talk about, so don't you do it. Um, tonight on the show, uh, we do have uh, Joe Eaton. Good evening, Warren. How are you going? I'm doing good. Um, I'm enjoying my bonus sunshine, late, after, late afternoon, there late summer sun. a beautiful golden hour light streaming into the studio right now. Have you had a, a good week in tech so far, or is it? It's it's been all right. Yeah. yeah. It, uh, um, uh, Microsoft Teams sometimes. Yeah, not so good. Yeah, but you know, That's apart from is. that, I still can't figure out the gallery view. I've been going into these meetings with like ten or fifteen people, and I can see like three or four. The thing I dislike about that one, what you've got to do is you've got to go into the view and then right. click and go large gallery. Large gallery. That's my tech tip for the week. Nice. Um, I'm with you also. I'm Warren Davies. Um, for the past two years, the Attorney General's Office has been uh, consulting on and reviewing the Federal Privacy Act. And last week they thought, well, we might as well do something with this. And they released their report on the Act with 116 recommendations. Uh, a lot of it is good stuff. Um, it's all worth a, a bit of a poke around. So we'll be joined by James Clark uh, in a few minutes. He's the executive director of Digital Rights Watch. Um, and we're going to have a chat about the report and what it could mean for, for all of us. So um, it's very exciting. Um, for a lot of people, how and where we work uh, was also kind of turned upside down during the pandemic. Um, there was a lot of good in this. So, um, yeah, we've, we've talked about um, like workplace surveillance and all kinds of weird tech. And um, now we're going to have a bit of a chat uh, tonight uh, about um, where it's at with uh, work anywhere, anytime, uh, perhaps uh, for the older folks out there realizing the dream of the goodies. Um, a lot of countries are now uh, competing to lure digital, lure digital nomads and uh, remote workers to their shores. Um, and we're curious, is it working? Um, should it be state-funded? Um, what, what does it mean for local communities and culture? So we'll have a bit of a chat um, about an interesting test case from the middle of the North Atlantic. But before then, uh, there is plenty of uh, news we want to talk to you about. Um, one thing that has been uh, unfolding um, across uh, a, a few social platforms is being asked to pay for the stuff that you took for granted when you signed up and uh, a basic function of um, uh, the software um, you would um, imagine. Um, so if you've been following what's been going on with uh, Twitter and verified accounts and the complete schmozzle, um that took place there um, uh, a month or two back where there was kind of all kinds of layers of verification, um, Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook has said, hold my beer, I'm also going to make a mess of my platform. And the very defining feature of Facebook, which is it is you and inarguably you, has now become slippery and they're now saying you should perhaps pay to get uh, verified as you, even though we've been doing this and pouring our own data into it for years and 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 years. They're now saying you have to prove it and that's okay. You can pay 11 bucks a month or whatever it is to do that. But if you get locked out of your account, they make you upload ID anyway. So 
I don't see what the point of this is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I guess like uh, sort of monthly users and new user um, uh, numbers for both of these platforms is is uh, fairly static. Um, yeah, there is a, 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 a competitor that I, I don't really need to name at the moment who's doing a lot better. <laughs> so maybe they're just grabbing grabbing any dollar they can uh, while they can. So um, it kind of sounds like, uh, it reminds me of the interest rates, typical thing when um, the RBA puts up the rates and one bank does it and then they all kind of pile on to do it as quick as they can. So maybe they just realized at Facebook it was a free a free kick for them since somebody else had already set the running uh, in that way. That's interesting. Um, you've been keeping an eye on AI. Yeah. So there is a science fiction and fantasy magazine that is well known as being a really reliable publisher of short stories and is quite well paid. So people who submit their stories to it get paid pretty well and pu- are published in a, in a fairly efficient manner. Nice. Now, it's called Clark's World, and they have um, recently tweeted that submissions are closed. Um, the The reason for this is that they have become overwhelmed by AI-generated short story submissions that they can't keep up. Mm. Um, they say that there are people teaching kind of hustle culture using AI, and uh, that one of the things they, they teach them is to generate short stories and, like, mass submit them all around the place. So... This outlet for, you know, short story writers is just not available to them at the moment. How how are they supposed to get paid if one of the best sources for pay is unable to process anything? I, I didn't have much to say about the whole chat GPT and, and kind of um, various AI um, clones um, sort of was it maybe before Christmas or just after? Um, there was a lot of uh, brouhaha, and I think I think ultimately it, it will be very interesting and um, it's it's got potential, but it's really um, causing a few headaches at the moment um, in a lot of places. Academia and it's happened media. so quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if there's a way that we could use AI to track down these hustle people well, that's, um, and that's put the, them out of business. The publisher have said, please don't suggest that we use um, that. Uh, there's like a tool, I can't remember, it's zero something that mm. you can use to check um, if something uh, has um, been generated by ChatGPT, but they are saying it's not reliable enough. Mm. Um, They're saying that there are no verification tools that are reliable enough at at the moment, and that doesn't stop the fact that their submission uh, zone is getting totally spammed. So they've said they're not closing the magazine, they're just closing submissions for now and trying to work out how they're going to deal with it. Like Maybe maybe you'll have to call them up. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Um, Perhaps some people who could help track them down is uh, ASIO. uh, I, it is uh, amusing to find that um, ASIO do do uh, an event and a keynote speech and uh, media releases on the regular. And um, there's kind of a, I guess in um, security circles, a uh, um, uh, a briefing on the sort of um, threat levels across a, a variety of areas given by um, Mike Burgess, who's the current ASIO chief, on um, what's going on uh, around uh, Australia and, and further afield. Um, and I did notice this one because it was talking about a, um, a particular group uh, that had been detected, surveilled and um, sent packing um, who were trying to um, gather information on uh, on Australians and Potentially even there was a second uh, level around this of extracting Australians um, to give them a hard time um, offshore. Um, so 
It's interesting. Uh, obviously, they want to sort of gently outline what's been going on without giving the specifics so that they can continue to kind of, you know, um, confront um, these individuals. But I was uh, also enjoying the uh, the um, insect language here. Um, a couple of years ago, they'd found a nest of ne'er-do-wells, oh. and now it's a hive. Ah. Uh, so it's obviously bigger. It was like an episode of uh, Utopia. I can imagine them going, what's bigger than a nest? Um, <laughs> what's bigger than a hive? <laughs> <laughs> a skyscraper of, <laughs> of uh, ne'er-do-wells um, with individual nests and, and hives. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's tricky. I mean, I, th- I think we do need um, surveillance and, and, and sort of counter-surveillance. Um, be interesting to know, like, how we can hold these people accountable. Um, and, you know, it's our tax dollars kind of supporting the, the um, intelligence community. Um, so, yeah, um, I mean... They're, they're paid to kind of look for threats. So um, I guess when they do their announcement to say that there's threats everywhere, it's, we shouldn't be too surprised. Um, but, you know, um, I guess somebody's got to do it. So uh, good luck to them. Um, in more kind of fun news, um, yeah, so you've, got some, you've been doing some singing and this I is a piece of... I have been doing some singing. I've been doing singing lessons recently and thoroughly enjoying it. But doesn't really compare to when I was 19 and working in a call centre as a market research interviewer. Mm. And by the end of the day, every workday, I couldn't talk. Wow, yeah. Um, so it got to the point where I'd, I, probably after about three months, I had to make my days shorter because I was losing my voice earlier and earlier on mm. in the shift. Probably what I needed was this interesting new piece of tech. Mm. Um, it's a, um, a wearable tech um, two pieces, mm-hmm. which consists of a, a, a little thing that you wear on your neck um, over your voice box mm-hmm. and uh, a wristband that provides haptic feedback. And it pays attention to what's happening within your um, in your vocal cords. And if you start to strain or um, it becomes obvious that you're having issues, it sends a little haptic feedback to your wrist and tells you to take a little break. Mm, interesting. Um, I would imagine yeah, a few of our listeners and uh, yeah, people in the music community um, uh, and even media would would be interested in this. Um, apparently, I was I was having a bit of a, a sniff around at it. Apparently, it captures the vibrations, but it doesn't record what you're actually saying. Yes. So you're not really yeah. under surveillance as such. Yeah, it's not it's not reading that as such. It's it's reading the the movements in your vocal cords. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So it's um, been developed by uh, Northwestern University. Nice. Yeah. Um, and just a, a last piece of news. Um, last year we did speak a lot about um, the metaverse. It was kind of the, the thing that um, a lot of people were, were interested in developing stuff in. I guess that and, and NFTs. It was the year of NFTs and, and the metaverse. Um, but uh, many players are having a bit of a, a tough uh, tough series of growing pains. And uh, Tencent, um, the parent company behind uh, TikTok, uh, has become one of the latest to uh, let a few people go and, I guess, uh, down grade their excitement for um, the potential for metaverse. Um, 
So along with uh, Microsoft and uh, one or two other companies who have historically been interested in developing um, uh, hardware and software, um, they have um, notified a particular division uh, for virtual reality that um, it had been planning to produce hardware and software and they'd hired sort of 300, 400 people um, to create this kind of ring-like controller and some interesting stuff, which was a first for them. They're, they're kind of one of the bigger games companies as, as well as doing things like TikTok. But um, yeah, they've um, they've scaled that back and they've told uh, the people working in this division that they have to find a way to be redeployed within uh, Tencent um, as the group was going to be dissolved. Rough. Yeah, some of the um, so Meta laid off eleven thousand employees. Um, a lot of that was related to um, to VR platforms, and Microsoft uh, laid off around ten thousand. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is not all uh, across um, VR, but um, yeah, I mean, maybe um, just probably a little bit exaggerated in the short term, but um, still an interesting space. Um, I do remember one of my favourite stories of twenty twenty two was when uh, Meta announced legs, new legs <laughs> yes. for people. Uh, it was a great story. Um, I enjoy my legs, and um, I, I, I love love my legs. <laughs> love your I legs. I know how to use them. Nice. Uh, while we were all kind of uh, reading books and taking walks in the park and doing other things, the Federal Attorney General's Office uh, has been looking into the Privacy Act um, over the past couple of years and uh, not one to sit on their hands. They thought, let's put out a report and they've done that. And there are a juicy 116 recommendations for uh, reform, ideas, consideration, and uh, it is out um, a couple of days after Valentine's Day uh, last week. They put this forth. So we thought, let's get somebody in to have a chat about this. And we are now joined in studio by Executive Director of Digital Rights Watch, James Clark. James, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I'm liking your good shirt for radio here. How would you describe that as a, as a radio shirt for our listeners? Um, I would describe this as um, Northcote lesbian chic. Um, It's giving more like um, Manchester to me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's some overlap in that in that style. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's a colourful, it's a party shirt. It's a lovely 30 degree day in Melbourne, and I figured, why not put on a nice, colourful party shirt? Life is too short to be boring. And and listen to Screamadelica. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. But in, in serious news, uh, there have been uh, documents floating around. Um, I'd be interested to know, um, we, we were just having a bit of a chinwag about um, we don't really think of rights and personal rights and civic rights and, and even digital rights in Australia that much, hence hence the organisation. What, what does the Privacy Act actually cover and what should we be concerned about based in legislation so far? Well, that's a great great first question because what the Privacy Act covers is actually one of the really critical things that needs to be considered in the review. At the moment, the, the Privacy Act covers uh, what is considered um, about like information about someone and like personal information, and that's been defined historically quite narrowly. Um, that looks at things that like your name, your address, your phone number, stuff that you know, per, that we would consider personal information. But in the digital age um, and the ability for um, really cheap data collection and data storage, uh, machine learning and all of the different kind of data connections that we can draw, um, what counts as personal information in the digital age is, is much more expansive. And we know that there are companies, um, ad tech companies in particular, these big um, social media companies, Meta, Twitter, uh, Google, uh, building profiles on people that doesn't necessarily include information about 
their name and address, but includes all kinds of information about their their interests and other kind of inferred information. Um, and that's not that hasn't been covered and isn't covered by the Privacy Act at the moment. Um, and so we want to see the Privacy Act, um, uh, the definition of personal information, to to be expanded so that it includes all of these things. Um, the Privacy Act is meant to be there to provide some principles to keep. Um, to help us protect our right to privacy, our right to privacy is really fundamental to democracy. Um, Australia, like we were talking about during the break, just does not have a, a culture of rights, of talking about rights. We don't have any kind of bill of rights. We don't have any kind of enshrinement of these human rights in this in Australian law. Um, and so because there's not this real culture about rights, we tend to, uh, we don't ground our conversations in this. But like, Privacy is really fundamental. It enables a whole bunch of other rights, our freedom of speech, our freedom of our ability to kind of assemble, our freedom to organise. And ultimately, this comes into our ability to hold people in power accountable. If we don't have any privacy, if big companies and government are constantly looking into our lives and collecting information about us, that fundamentally is going to erode our ability to uh, organise and hold them accountable. And so the right to privacy... Uh, not always the sexiest thing to talk about, but definitely a, a really important part of our kind of civic landscape and our and our democracy. Hmm. So, presumably, um, before kind of um, uh, World Wide Web uh, internet, there is a lot of information about us doing things. Like we had we had library cards, and we went to places, and we registered for us, and we were on committees. How did the Privacy Act treat all of that stuff? Um, were they aware of kind of these little breadcrumbs of our civic lives being out there? And are you backfilling a lot of work here? Is there a lot of work to do, kind of like post the internet to go? Actually, we do a lot of stuff, and we probably have a right to protect it, or not to be remembered, or for that to not be kept. Yeah, I think one of the, the really critical things that obviously changes with, with computers is the scale that you can collect information, um, the ease at which it can be searched, the ease at which it can be, that connections can be drawn. So, for example, you know, your library, library card at the Brunswick East Library, whatever, would, would, you know, have only the information there, probably on paper, you know, and historically there would be mm. the little library cards with yeah. the little stamps on them, and that would be the record that exists of what books you've borrowed. Um Whereas now you can start to collect that onto a computer. Presumably libraries, you know, librarians have historically been um, very aggressive in protecting the privacy of people who use the library and, and they should absolutely be applauded for that. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting example. But, you know, obviously it's just things like now we're looking at everything you search on the internet can be compared to, you know, and every link you click can all just be pulled together into one place. Um, and obviously, you know, there are big companies on the internet who make it their business to try and, figure out where you are on the internet at all times. Mm. Um, you add to that things like real-world surveillance. So um, obviously facial recognition has been in the news a lot recently, um, but even more benign things like um, tracking your phone around shopping centres. So if you go into a shopping centre, connect to the Wi-Fi in amongst all of the terms and conditions that you agree to when you do that, one of those often is going to be the ability for them to track you around the shopping centre. They use beacons, Wi-Fi beacons mm. to track you. Um and so just, I guess, like the scale and the ability and our, our, pri our privacy is just being constantly eroded in the digital age in a way that I guess was just difficult to do in the, in the previous age. And that's why I think this Privacy Act hasn't been meaningfully updated since the 80s. Um, and so obviously it's, it's well past time for this to be updated.
Hmm. And, and what are some of the um, proposals? There's some um, uh, w- wonderfully delicious cake-sounding um, ideas here, including torts, but maybe it's a different type of tort. Could, could you kind of like explain some of the, the things that we might be able to, to see happening? Yeah, so like I mentioned at the beginning, one of the things we really want to see changed is the definition of personal information, and they have um, proposed a change to that. I think they've moved the definition from um, about to ref- to relates to. Um, it's still probably not far enough. Um, we want to see this to be really clear that any information that can kind of distinguish an individual from a group um, is covered by this so that to make sure that um, so we're keeping an eye on that. I think there's been some concerns raised about this just not being broad enough. But we do want to see that personal information changed. They are doing it. We think it could go further. We want, But, you know, there, there's time. I guess this isn't law yet. We really want to advocate for that to be as broad as possible. We want to make sure this applies to as, as much personal information as we can. Um, like you mentioned, the tort. So uh, an ability for people to um, either individually or in class actions uh, take... Uh, actors to court, so companies or government to court for serious invasions of privacy. Mm. Um, At the moment, there is no um, way for people to take action themselves if their privacy has been um, breached by a company. Um, And so having this tort and a direct right of action will allow people to to have other methods. And so that's been proposed. And we're really excited. That's something that Digital Rights Watch, as long as many other privacy advocates have been Uh, advocating for 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 a very long time and we're really excited to see that show up in this report um the other thing i think that's really interesting is the fair and reasonable test um often you'll see in like those terms of service that i mentioned um that you know we've all in in our day-to-day life probably five or six times just go yes i we just lie we just say yes i've read the terms and conditions Mm. yes i agree to them um and often that's used as kind of a a catch-all consenting to stuff that that just isn't fair and reasonable. It's not, you know, for example, if you go to Amazon and buy a book, it would be fair and reasonable to assume that, you know, the personal information you provide to them to buy that book is used to process the order and deliver your book, right? Like that's a fair and reasonable thing to assume that that's what you're providing your information for. It's probably not fair and probably not reasonable for them to turn around and go and use all of that information, add it to a massive database of everything that they've collected on you, all of the other items that you looked at while you were searching through Amazon, all of the other websites that their cookies were able to track you on, and then feed that into a machine learning algorithm to train an AI writing tool. Mm. Like that's... That goes far beyond the scope of what I would consider fair and reasonable. And I think that even if you technically consent to that through terms and conditions, um, you know, having some kind of test there of like what is fair and reasonable in terms of like what people can do with our personal information. Um, you know, a lot of this is devil in the detail stuff, but that's pretty exciting if that's taken to its kind of logical conclusion. I just that, imagine a bunch of people sitting around the table with Jeff sort of go, that sounds reasonable, sir. Yeah, yeah. absolutely reasonable. Another <laughs> fair-minded idea, sir. Exactly. <laughs> Very fair-minded to train these AI algorithms <laughs> off book purchases. Um, yeah, so I think that's something that, like I said, it's a lot of devils in the detail here, and we are looking at a, at a report rather than actual legislation, but there's a lot of stuff in here to be broadly excited about it it seems to be moving in in a direction that we're 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 pretty happy happy with 
What's some of this stuff in the kind of like the contestable area here where um, I guess in Australia we're kind of you've got a history of kind of like putting on the chain and kind of just accepting how things are mm. and, you know, oh, it's the government and what can you do about it and there's to fix up. But this whole idea that we can contest our own rights and kind of level of comfort around dealings in the marketplaces is kind of interesting. So there's things like the right to erasure, right to object, right to opt out. What are some of these things and how how, sh- how should we think about them? If like if it's up to us to grab them and use them and run with them, What how should we think about these rights? Yeah, I think one of the things that's really, you know, really critical to the way that we think about this is that, um, you know, importantly, um, these shouldn't be, for the most part, up to individuals. And so that um, our privacy is, you know, both a collective a collective good, like it, it's, it's a collective societal thing to have privacy. Um, and so we don't want to put too much burden on, on individuals, I suppose. Um, and so we, that's the eye that we take to this, is that we're really looking for reforms that are a collective in nature and that, that put the burden on the people who want to invade our privacy more than on the individuals to protect it. Nice. Um, and so the burden should be if the company want, if a company wants to collect a bunch of information about us, they should have to go, you know, they should have to prove why that is a reasonable thing to do rather than the individual should have to prove why it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, there are a number of things in here that will give consumers and, and citizens a lot more power um, the right to erasure is an interesting one and one that's been tested out in Europe that seems to be fairly good. Um, again, none of these are silver bullets. They're like in a, a suite of things. They, they work quite well. Um, the right to de-indexing is a, a good one to be able to like take your information off search engines if you, um, you know, if you don't want your, if, if like search engines are pulling up kind of personal mm. information about you. Um, the other one that's kind of interesting that came up in this report was an unqualified right to opt out of um, direct marketing um, and to have your personal information used for kind of targeting advertising. Mm. And while that doesn't necessarily stop the collection of and use of this personal information, I guess, by these companies, opting out of targeted advertising removes the incentive for them. You know, like the reason that these companies are collecting all of this information about us, for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, is so that they can kind of define an audience, cut us, slice us into like sellable audiences to sell to advertisers. And if we tell them that they're not allowed to do that, the financial incentive for them to invade our privacy or, you know, disappears fairly quickly. And that could also be a really effective way of reining in some of these privacy invasive practices. Interesting. Um, so it's a, it's a report that's come out and they're, they're seeking kind of uh, input or um, uh, submissions. Ha, ha, if people care about these rights, um, what can they do? How can they get involved or, or kind of take action here? Yeah, so there's a submissions process into, the, um, into this report that's open until the end of March. Um, that's on the Attorney General's website. Um, Digital Rights Watch is planning to run a couple of sessions or at least one session where we're going to teach people uh, some of the basics of how to make a submission into these kind of processes. We know that for a lot of people this is, um, you know, it's not not a process they're familiar with, engaging with government in this way. Um, And so we want to make sure that people are equipped and and feeling ready to have those kind of make a meaningful submission. Um, And as well, you know, teaching them about like what's in the Privacy Act and giving people a space to ask questions of, of us about it. So we're going to have a, a workshop probably in the next couple of weeks. So I'd also encourage people, we haven't, those details haven't been finalised, but if you go to digitalrightswatch.org.au, that's our website, um, and sign up to our mailing list, you'll you'll hear from us about when that's going to be. Um, as well as all the other ways, this is going to be an ongoing process. We've got this report. We expect there'll be 
some draft legislation sometime after kind of these submissions have been made, and then we'll also expect to see you know, some some kind of debate in Parliament. So this is going to be a process that isn't going to end at the end of this month. There's going to be more steps to this. So, um, yeah, following along Digital Rights Watch, we'll, we'll be keeping you up to date every step of the way in this process. We've been talking to James Clark, who is Executive Director of Digital Rights Watch. Uh, James, thanks for coming in. That was a good chat. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. If you uh, if you are listening to this uh, around the world, uh, or even from a spec in the North Atlantic, uh, you may be working remotely, working from anywhere, um, hardly working. Whatever suits you is great. Um, the pandemic has definitely changed um, uh, how and where we work. And I was having a bit of a poke through uh, a Wired magazine and um, this particular piece caught my eye because they were looking to build a digital nomad village um, uh, in a little spot called uh, Ponte do Sol, which is on the island of uh, Madeira, um, which is a, uh, a part of Portugal, um, uh, way off the coast in the North Atlantic Digital Nomad Village, I thought, I've kind of um, avoided my stint as a digital nomad. I've never really done that. But I guess with with my kind of work, I could potentially just kind of throw on my backpack and, and have a go. But um, Australians love it. Um, and I'm going to kind of like maybe open it up to a bit of a conversation to start with about um, if you go to places like Bali or, or other places through Asia, um, Karen, who was on the show for a long time, like swears by the idea of, of getting out there and she's doing some interesting work in that space. Um, have you noticed any changes kind of coming out of the back end of pandemic um, about how people think about work and where they work? And um, is technology helping us with that? What, what are your thoughts? It's completely changed for people who get to sit at computers and mm. do work rather than physically interact with people. Um, mm. We, you know, I, I get to work from home. Mm. I, um, in theory, I could go anywhere as long as they didn't <laughs> know about it. Hello to Joe's boss and if you're out there listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, it's true, right? And and I, I bosses just kind of don't care as much as they used to, um, you know, so long as you're, you're getting through your stuff and you're happy and, and, and things are working, then that's great. Um, this particular story and the idea of a digital nomad village, I was thinking about it. I kind of have been part of a, a, a village for a while and we're all part of um, this we're talking about a, a, a village, but in this case, it is both in a place in, in Madeira, but also um, on Slack, uh, in email. Um, and you've worked forms. out of co-working space, spaces and scenarios as well, haven't you? True, true. Yeah. So I've been in uh, virtual communities um, quite a bit, but um, we all have. So I guess the, the idea that um, uh, we can just kind of uh, abscond and then plug back into these places, whether it's a Slack channel or something else, um, is um, it's not a new thing. But what was interesting about this place, a uh, young entrepreneur um, who'd been um, done his time in, in Kanju and, and a few other places, Chengyu, I always get it wrong, the place in Bali, the Black Beach, um, uh, had decided that this was great and um, he popped up to talk at a conference in Madeira about um, working remotely and, and that kind of lifestyle and then realised that Madeira was 
crazily nice. It had all the things that make it attractive to um, to these um, digital nomads and fast internet and uh, beautiful scenery, low cost of living, um, lots of rentals, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he pitched the idea of creating a village and uh, I guess a bit of a, a scheme to draw people from Europe and, and other parts of the world to go and work there. And there's an interesting kind of, uh, I guess, cautionary tale where I guess some of it worked and some of it didn't. Um, the main sort of sticking points um, in this story seems to be around um, how the community was introduced, uh, how the, the um, remote worker community was introduced to the local community, how they were welcomed and what it meant for, uh, I guess, the ambitions for the for the country. Um, this particular part of Madeira is pretty slow and sleepy. Um, uh, it's got an interesting cultural heritage where um, Madeira actually means timber. So when the Portuguese kind of found it in the 1500s, they just went, oh my God, look at this amazing forest and um, let's um, harvest it. And apparently the fire burned for seven straight years as they oh. harvested the, the timber. So there is a kind of a bit of a history of kind of um, plundering resources uh, in the area. And there have been um, criticisms leveled at the uh, organisers behind this particular scheme um, in Madeira. Uh, where they haven't really given much thought to to the local community and what it means to be from Madeira and what they would want out of a, a new community there. Um, the super cool thing was, um, uh, at least according to this piece in Wired, they were quite keen to have people from all around the world um, kind of set up shop in Madeira and... Um, uh, across Portugal and, and lots of countries around the world, there's um, a variety of schemes to kind of lure in people who are uh, a little bit rootless with the idea that they might put down roots and, and sort of contribute to the, the fabric of the culture. Are Madeira purpose, are the people who are setting this up this village in Madeira purpose building accommodation? Yeah, so there was um, originally, um, there were. Some a small amount of accommodation set up as part of the scheme and then locals have kind of got involved and gone, oh, actually this is a good marketplace. Um, maybe I can knock down my granny flat and put up something more um, concrete, um, literally, and uh, people might move in. So um, I'm not kind of privy to how it was pitched internally to the to the local people um, as, a, as a scheme, but um, yeah, you, you would imagine that a kind of a, a bit of a gold rush would have been painted as, you know, these people, well, actually it was, you know, young and they've got lots of money and um, they're willing to spend it and, um, you know, they socialise a lot. And um, so that that was no doubt dangled um, for, for the local residents. But um, it's not it's not finalised yet. This particular um, digital nomad village in Ponta do Sol is, um, uh, is still kind of... Um, working through the growing pains. Um, there was a, a funny story in it about um, when the first crew kind of arrived there um, one winter, it was kind of off the end of the pandemic and there was still a lockdown until 7pm in Madeira. You couldn't go out. So they had this party on the beach where they were letting off fireworks and stuff like that and the locals were just kind of looking and going, I wonder how this is going to turn out. It was the first kind of like half a dozen, dozen people who kind of um, opted into the scheme. Um, software developers from um, Poland and um, entrepreneurs and um, you know people who run e-commerce businesses and so forth. But um, I think they're up to about 500 uh, people now, and wow, there's, been, there's been there's um, been I think eight or nine thousand they estimate people who've been through to kind of check it out and have a bit of a poke around, and that's not just in this scheme. That's kind of people who are working from Madeira, um, any of the islands, um, and, and coming through it. So it seems to be the right idea, and um, you know all all around the world, it's the right idea that 
these people are, are interested in are coming to visit, um, there is economic benefits. They are, they are spending money, whether they're creating lots of new jobs. I'm not really sure about that, but um, there is an upside to it. But um, I guess like anything, we try and kind of paint it as like it's a perfect situation. Everyone, everyone's going to win and everyone's going to be happy. Of course, that's not true. Um, a variety of different mm. things can happen. I was reading, you know, about other places that have become popular because uh, they have these digital nomad visas mm. and their rents are low mm. and they have that whole Airbnb effect of making rentals too expensive and unavailable for true locals it's and true. that kind of gentrification is yuck. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like this Madeira one is a bit more thoughtfully planned. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of not um – you have to kind of want to be there and want to do it. It's a little bit out of the way. It's not like, um, you know, London or Bali or, you know, New York or what have you. You have to kind of want to do it. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it's not like uh, – so the, the state was partly behind this one, but um, – so are a lot of states in a lot of places. Like even in Melbourne, we have uh, accelerators and incubators. There's heaps of them. And, and Philip Deladakis did a great job of kind of encouraging that here in, in Melbourne. Um <laughs> Yeah, I kind of – I think governments like it because it sounds sexy and it wins votes and you can kind of paint the picture of this kind of like technology is is, is our kind of gold rush for, for, for this generation and we need to have a part of it and if they don't do it here, they'll do it in New Zealand or Southeast Asia or Japan or, you know, what have you. So we might as well get a piece of that. Um as we saw from one of those previous pieces, um, you know, 10,000 jobs in is 10,000 jobs that you can really easily lose off the back of, like, the metaverse is not quite as exciting as we thought it is. So, um, yeah, these jobs are, are really transient. They are a little bit rootless in themselves because because you can do them anywhere. If you don't, if you decide you don't like Madeira, you can go and do it from Iceland or, you know, outback Australia or what, what have you. So it's not like jobs in, you know, jobs that have deep connections to the local community. By definition, that's why people are there. So be interesting. I don't know. We'll, we'll keep an eye on this one. And, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not kind of like pointing the finger yeah, at anyone. I, I think it's a, an interesting experiment. I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot to be investigated around the cultural implications for the locals, uh, gentrification implications, um, whether um, those are outweighed by the um, economic benefits of bringing in lots of people with disposable income. Yeah. Uh, if they can be outweighed or if, if, if there is a balance Mm. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot to be um, to be written about this. Exactly. Triple R. Nice. Uh, there is just a few minutes left in the show before Anthony Carew swings by uh, with International Pop Underground, but uh, we did want to um, call out a couple of events and opportunities uh, before that does happen. Um one of our uh, uh, sort of regular guests um, over the years, uh, Bronnie Cole, has um, helped launch uh, Sex Tech School, uh, which is, I guess, the combination of a lot of stuff she's been working on um, over the years. Um, there is, uh, I guess, a new course. It's a six-week live uh, online course where you learn about sex tech industry, um, how to, uh, I guess, transform an idea um, in sex tech um, and, and get that started. 
grow a community and create your own path uh, in sex tech. So um, there's a whole bunch of um, stuff that you would expect to see um, in a in a course. Um, I'm curious about the curriculum. Um, week one is uh, intro, then they've got industry knowledge, different business models. Um, I think that's pretty cool. Um, uh, I've got no idea what um, what kind of businesses, aside from you know products and, and so forth, but um, what else is going on in sex tech. And Maybe we need to get Bryony on to have a chat about what ha- what happens at sex tech school. It's been a while, so um, that would be fun. Um, how to engage a community, branding, how to showcase. Um, so yeah, it seems like a really uh, practical kind of um, course um, to, um, to to sort of get going if uh, if you're into sex tech and pricing looks pretty good. Um, yeah, um, stick around for that. We might have some um, news um, in coming months about that particular um, course. Um, we have uh, a place um, you should be getting down to called uh, ACME, Australian Centre for the Moving Image, and they do a lot of uh, great stuff on games. And there's a few fun talks coming up um, over the next few weeks. Um, we did want to call out uh, video games performance. Uh, Marie Fulston uh, is having a conversation with Ginny Maxwell um, about uh, video games performance. And I guess... Um, what does that mean? Is that like vocal performance or... No, I think it means uh, I'm just uh, had a bit of a quick read through here. It's kind of every time you come together to play games with people, it's an act oh, of collaboration, right. and you are right. performing. So whether you're turning up as your authentic self or as a, a persona or an idea, nice. it's a act of uh, performance. So um, that's pretty cool. Um, that is free, which is great. Um, it's on next Wednesday, the first of March. So if you want to warm up with a little bit of this and then check out Bite Into It next week, you can do that. Um, that's pretty cool. And just quickly, another one. Um, video games funding and creative practice. Um, you can join a panel of developers, artists, curators, and producers as they explore the intersection of creative and commercial practice. So if you want to get along to that, um, that is next Monday. Um, and it is also free, but you should book. So check out acme.net.au and navigate to the game stuff. Joe, you've also got your eye on a particular thing. Designing impactful solutions that stick. It's hosted by Vic ICT for Women. And it's on Wednesday, the 22nd of March from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Um, it's at uh, the, oh, it's at ANZ on Collins Street in Docklands. And tickets are between $20 and $40, bit of a sliding scale thing there. And you can find out more about that at members.vicictforwomen.com.au. And uh, tickets are also available on that little place there. Nice. Thank you very much to our, our guest this evening, uh, James of Digital Rights Watch. Um, thank you, uh, Joe, for um, making it a fun show. It's been uh, nice to hang out. As you always do. Um, thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy, and podca- podcaster, Carrie Smythe. Uh, we've been bite into it. Um, we will also be bite into it next week if you want to stick around again. And uh, we've earned your trust with our amazing content. Um, stay tuned for the International Pop Underground with Anthony Crew, And uh, have a fun night. Stay cool, Melbourne. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 